Hey friends, I'm Jenny Meyer, and you're listening to the Rooted Truth Podcast, where we look at the world through a biblical lens. We talk about real life, biblical truth, and how to walk with Jesus through it all. Be sure to follow me on social at Jenny Meyer and at The Rooted Truth. Also, be sure to subscribe to the members-only, all-exclusive episodes on the Rooted Truth Podcast by going to www.therootedtruth.com. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. So today we welcome back a fan favorite, Dr. Laura Sanger. Laura has been on the podcast a few other times discussing this world that we live in from a biblical viewpoint. And that's the most important thing. She is also the author of The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from the U- from Noah to the U.S. Dollar. So welcome back, Laura. I'm excited today to chat today. I know. I'm excited, too. It's always great to be with you. Yeah. And we had the privilege um, of getting together this last weekend, having lunch a couple of times in person. And it's just so great to to see. I mean, we see people online and we listen to people's podcasts, but being in person is just so different. So that was really, really fun. It was a definite treat. Yeah. And the fact that we got to see each other twice in one yep. weekend, <laughs> yep. that was a gift for sure. It was so fun. And in two weeks from when we're recording this, we're like two weeks and one day away from our conference in Phoenix. Um, And we're going to be talking about living in modern day Babylon, right? And living in enemy territory and looking at all the stories of the Bible that that talk about this, but then what do we do as believers? So we're bringing in different different aspects of that, the four of us. Um, and so I'm excited to have you there as well. And I know all the ladies that are coming are very, very excited for that. Yeah, it's going to be great. I can't wait. So, okay. So you've been on the podcast before talking about what you call the Nephilim agenda. So maybe before we dive in today, we're going to be going into developing um, resilience and, you know, how do we live in today's world? But maybe if you want to just start like a little bit of backstory, um, just real short of what this Nephilim agenda is. Yes, absolutely. So essentially it was unleashed during the days of Noah. So it's the plan to defile the human genome through the propagation of a hybrid race. And the purpose of that is to overthrow God's kingdom. Now at the core of the Nephilim agenda is the goal to strip us of our humanity. And so in order for them to hijack our bodies and turn us into hybrids, they have to hijack our mind first. And that's what I want to talk about today, because I want to help, um, you know, provide tools for us to prevent that from happening. And really, um, you know, thinking about developing resilience so that we can prevail in the midst of troubling times. So I'm excited um, just to kind of unpack this a little bit. And, you know, one of the things that I try and do uh, with each podcast that I'm on is um, really walk in what I feel like the Lord has called me to do. And that is to awaken people to the impact of the Nephilim agenda today, because, you know, we could be deceived in thinking that, you know, the Nephilim only roamed the earth during the days of antiquity, but there are Nephilim alive, there are Nephilim hosts and this Nephilim agenda that has been playing out really since the seed war of Genesis three. So one of the ways that the Nephilim agenda is advancing today is through the fourth industrial revolution. So I want to unpack this a little bit, again, to make us aware and to provide us with tools that will equip us from being duped or hoodwinked by this um, agenda. 
So with um, the fourth industrial revolution, essentially it's the convergence of advancements in biotechnology and information technology. And so it combines, um, you know, our digital identities, our physical identities, and our biological identities. And I want to read something that Klaus Schwab says about it. He says, the fourth industrial revolution doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take genetic editing as an example, it's you that has changed. And of course, this has a big impact on your identity. So what the fourth industrial revolution involves is the merging of big tech data, quantum computing, AI, machine learning, genetics, robotics, and nanotechnology. And really what this does is it presents us with an existential crisis of the highest order. And that is, will humans continue to exist in the near future? Now, if you ask Yoval Noah Harari, he doesn't think so. And Harari, for those that don't know, he's a historian, but he's also Klaus Schwab's uh, right-hand person. And I'm going to read to you a quote that Harari says. He says, we are probably one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. Within a century or two, Earth will be dominated by entities that are more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals or from chimpanzees. Because in the coming generations, we will learn how to engineer bodies, brains, and minds. This will be the product of the 21st century economy, not vehicles, textiles, and weapons, but bodies, brains, and minds. Those who control the data control the future of not just humanity, but of life itself. Because today, data is the most important asset of our time. Now, when Harari says that the products of the 21st century are bodies, brains, and minds, what he's referring to in part are human brain organoids. So a human brain organoid is um, an artificial organ grown in vitro to resemble a brain, and it originates from embryonic stem cells. Now, as of right now, these brain organoids do not have a vascular system. So without blood flowing to them, they remain limited in size and viability. But certainly the way technology is progressing, there may come a time where they're able to get blood flowing to these organoids, at which point, you know, they'll become more lar larger and more mature brains that can be used. Now, we do know that scientists right now have successfully been able to grow sections of a brain and transplant them into degenerative areas within mice. So that's already happening. And then I have um, a really good friend named Mitchell Florn, and he is um, a microbiologist. He was a biopharmaceutical microbiologist, and he actually was a whistleblower on Big Pharma. And he's one of our unsung heroes. I mean, he, he just really um, risked a lot and paid a heavy cost to do the right thing. And he also, he was an atheist and he had a radical encounter with Jesus. And so he's now walking with the Lord. Anyways, wow. he's one of probably the most brilliant persons I've ever encountered. And so I am so grateful to be teamed with him because wow. he's like my personal professor. <laughs> <laughs> and he sends me, I mean, constantly text messages and emails of, peer-reviewed studies of, you know, latest um, technology, all of that. So two weeks ago, 
he informed me um, that scientists from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia, they've successfully 3D printed, quote, living neural networks composed of rat brain cells that seem to communicate like real brains do, end quote. So what these scientists were able to do is they took rat brain cells that were suspended in gel, they squeezed them through a tube into the scaffold, and they alternated bioink with and without cells to mimic alternating white matter and gray matter. So essentially, they were able to do this just like we would alternate black ink and color ink in a standard computer. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, these Nephilim hosts are advancing um, transhumanism. And that's because they want to replace humans. Now, if they're successful in turning us into hybrids, this obviously can you know, impact our ability to commune with creator God. And, you know, the, the speed at which they're progressing is really picking up. And so I want to kind of paint a big picture, but I promise I'll, I'll bring it to a place of hope. So you got to hang in there because yep, yep. no. it's going to get a little dark and then mm-hmm. I'll equip us all. Yeah, no, it's so, so interesting. It's so interesting because they are pushing this like every single day now, like this is all we see, we hear about. And I mean, Without just a little side note, without going into this topic a ton, but I, I've heard you speak about the poke, right? Mm-hmm. Is what is that? Okay, just real quick, your thoughts. Is that a first step or one of the steps into doing this into transhumanism? Yes, I believe so. Okay. And um, I'll talk about that in a few minutes because okay. I've got to tie some things together. But I do believe not only was it a grand experiment on humanity, both physical experiment, like how our bodies would respond, but also a psychological experiment. Yeah. Yep. And yep. I'll I'll touch on that in a moment. So um, one of the things I want to do is kind of provide a little bit of an overview of um you know, some of the the research that's been advancing towards this transhuman, transhumanism. So in 2010, uh, geneticist Craig Ventner, he created synthetic life forms through bioengineering a cell. And his critics actually accuse him of playing God. And they warn us that these artificial organs or organisms could be used as biological weapons. So again, kind of makes us think of, you know, what happened in 2020. So I I need to be real clear here because what Ventner did is he altered the genetic code of life. And this led experts to liken his work to the development of the nuclear weapon because Ventner's technology paired with CRISPR technology, which is essentially like gene editing software. Mm -hmm. It allows scientists to engineer anything to create synthetic life. And, you know, when they're doing this, they are actually usurping creator God. See, we are quickly approaching a day when humans can be hacked and our minds taken over. And as AI and nanotechnology progress, what scientists are attempting to do is connect or you know, essentially create a global super brain through the use of nanobots. So back in 2019, 
scientists from the Human Brain Cloud Interface Project, they report that nanobots are able to successfully navigate our human vascular. They're able to cross the blood-brain barrier, and then they auto-position themselves precisely and within and among our brain cells. And then once they're there, they then wirelessly transmit encoded information to and from a cloud-based supercomputer network. And what that does is that allows for real-time brain state monitoring and data extraction. So essentially, what these scientists are attempting to do is connect a network of human brains with AI to form a hive mind. And of course, this is a threat to our sovereignty as individuals. Yeah. So how, I mean, we we hear that, that phrase hive mind all the time and how do we then protect ourselves to not get into that, right? With, with all this biotechnology, how do we protect that sovereignty as humans, as God's creation, we're created in the image of God, because that's what we want to protect overall. Right, exactly. And I think one way we do that, first of all, is we educate ourselves. We need to be aware of what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hosea 4, 6 says, my people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Yeah. But then we recognize that the Lord has equipped us with everything that we need for such a time as this. And so um, let me just share a little bit about some of the, again, some of the advances um, in biotechnology, because It's so important that we understand this to maintain our sovereignty as individuals. Now, we all know about Wi-Fi, right? Wireless internet. But not many people know about Bi-Fi. And what Bi-Fi is, it's the biological internet. And it uses DNA to transmit messages across cells. So let me give some examples with this. Now, in 2012... Uh, scientists from the Stanford Research Institute, they discovered how to use a virus to encode information and to get that into infected cells. So this kind of goes back to your question earlier. Yeah. Okay. Um, so once these viruses gain access to a, an infected cell, they actually release the information that was encoded within the virus. And, you know, when we think about this, as far as, you know, the ramifications of this since 2020, it makes me wonder, is this why some people have had long haul symptoms? You know, is this part of what is happening were, um, you know, was their DNA changed by the information that was actually encoded within the virus and researchers, um, it allows them, you know, to to be able to send whatever messages they want through the DNA. Now, one of the scientists that was on this project, so again, this is 11 years ago, she said that this research could be used for tissue engineering and creating artificial organs. Well, the future is here. That's already happening now. Then also if we consider, so now this is back 20 years ago, um, but this is Russian scientists and they discovered that words and frequencies can actually reprogram our DNA. And this is where epigenetics um, plays a role. So simply stated, epigenetics is the impact our thoughts, behaviors, and lifestyle choices have on our body, soul, and spirit, as well as you know our future generations. Mm-hmm. So what Russian scientists decided to do is actually examine the 90% of our DNA 
that Western scientists consider to be junk DNA. So Western scientists only focus on the 10% of our DNA that's involved in building proteins. Hmm. Well, the Russian scientists thought outside of the box and what they found was actually groundbreaking. So they found that this, these, uh, this 90% of the DNA is actually involved in data storage and communication. So here, this, you know, quote unquote, junk DNA, it actually has the same rules as human language. It uses Mm -hmm. syntax and grammar. So it appears that human language is actually the verbalization of our DNA, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating to me. So these same Russian scientists, then they were able to use frequencies and words to transmit patterns of information from one set of DNA to another. So what they were able to do is transform a frog embryo into a salamander embryo without a surgical procedure. Wow. And this actually is scientific proof of the fact that our, our words have power. And, you know, this explains how epigenetics can actually change our DNA. Now, one of my favorite books on epigenetics is a book called uh, switch switch on your brain by Dr. Carolyn leaf. And I want to read an excerpt because um, not only does she explain about epigenetics, but she ties in um, the Bible as well. She says the scientific power of our mind to change the brain is called epigenetics and spiritually it is as a man thinks. So is he, which is Proverbs 23, seven, the way the brain changes as a result of mental activity is scientifically called neuroplasticity. And spiritually, it is the renewing of the mind. And that's Romans 12, 2. The science of epigenetics, which is tangible scientific proof of how important our choices are, they bring life or death, blessing or cursing, and they reach beyond us to influence the next generation. That's Deuteronomy 30, 19. This is because choices become signals that change our brain and body. So these changes are not dictated by our genes. Our thinking and subsequent choices become the signal switches for our genes. What's incredible is that genes are dormant until switched on by a signal. They have potential, but they have to be activated to release that potential. Your choices might impact the generations that follow for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation, Exodus 34, 7. So what she's saying here is she's tying in the power of our words, especially when releasing blessing or curses. See, we can actually curse ourselves and develop sickness and disease when, you know, things that come out of our mouth or when we come into agreement with somebody else who has cursed us. And so I've learned, you know, over time to choose my words very carefully. So for example, when I am fighting symptoms of a head cold, I won't say I'm sick. I'll say I'm fighting sickness. And so often, you know, I hear people say, you know, my arthritis or my diabetes or my cancer or my migraines. Well, when you do that, you're actually cursing yourself with ongoing issues in those areas because you're claiming it as part of your being. And so we have to understand how important our words are. Now, especially if we consider, you know, that our body is, 60 to 70 percent water and you know it makes sense that both sound and words impact our body so much in fact when you think about it blessing and curses they actually emit a certain frequency 
So curses emit a dissonant sound and that can alter matter to the subatomic level. And I love Masura Emoto's research um, because it, it really hones in and it's a poignant example of this. What he did is he measured the impact of negative and positive words on water molecules. So what he did is he took like little strips of paper and he put words on them. And then he taped those to water bottles with the words facing the water. And then he examined the water molecules, the crystallized form of those under a microscope. And he he discovered that the water molecules change structure based on the messages that they received. So if the water molecules received a message from that little strip of paper that says love and gratitude, for example, it would form these beautiful crystals, water crystals. But then if there were words like you fool or even Hitler, they formed this chaotic water crystal. Wow. Now it's interesting because water can't, water can't read, right? And so it's simply the vibration, the frequency that these written words emit, and it causes a vibration that changes the water molecule. Wow. That's so And this actually demonstrates that blessings are life-giving. You know, they have mm-hmm. the power to heal and the power to bring forth beauty and curses have the power to destroy. And so, you know, when you think about this, if the vibrations from the written words impacted the water molecules so much, just think about what we wear or what we listen to, like lyrics in songs or, you know, the things that um, we read. And, you know, one of the things that we can do to really help ourselves is imagine like when you open the word of God, what that is doing to every cell in your body. And when you declare it over yourself, um, you know, through the spoken word. And I love Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. It says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See the word of God, you know, it is this tremendous weapon in our fingertips, but so few Christians know how to wield it. And I think about, you know, when it's sharper than any two-edged sword, when Jesus was facing every temptation known to man. So lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He fought Satan with the word. He didn't fight Satan with his opinion. He said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so here we have, you know, the word of God is this powerful weapon in the spiritual battle to slay the giants. So if we combine the word of God with an understanding of our true identity in Christ, that we can walk in the fullness of the dominion authority that Jesus won for us on the cross. But unfortunately, so few Christians walk in the fullness of our authority because they've been incapacitated by fear, which really drains our emotional reserves. Yeah. And I love all that you said about like even that, that water experiment, because in, you know, I was in the fit- fitness industry for 10 years. And when I worked with people um, one-on-one, I saw better results in women who spoke 
out loud, I can do this. I've got this, you know, like even if their eating was not on point, exercise was not on point compared to the women that struggled every time they looked in the mirror or everything was negative, you know, and talking to me like, oh, I suck. I can't do this. This is so hard. So the negative comments about themselves, about the whole process, so different. You could have pretty much the same body composition and the one speaking life essentially saw much greater results. And I've even, I'm sure others have seen this um, experiment, but with plants too, have you seen that one where, you know, you have two plants, one, one you speak curses to essentially, and one you speak blessings like, oh, you're, you know, you're beautiful, you know, but they water them the same amount, but you speak life and death and the plant that's spoken hate or death to doesn't survive and it wilts and it fades. Mm -hmm. So Absolutely. it's so interesting. And I, I mean, I just love that because I know the mind is so powerful and you just kind of make it all click. Um, and, and when I was in the fitness industry, that's what I was going towards. I wanted to do more of that, of like understanding your mind, understanding who you are in Christ. Um, but I did a lit that for a little bit and obviously God took me a different direction, um, in, in this. And I love this, but as far as our emotional reserves and how, you know, how do we guard, guard our, that and guard our heart as the Bible says? Mm -hmm. Well, I think first of all, we have to recognize that fear is one of the most powerful drivers of mind control. And so, you know, when we think about this last several years, um, the Nephilim hosts, they had to release fear and panic in the masses to roll out their surveillance system. And I think, you know, under normal circumstances, there's no way that Americans would agree to, you know, come under surveillance. But unfortunately, um, you know, we came under the spell of the Nephilim host mind control tactics. Yep. And so, you know, it's really when we think about it, it's psychological warfare of the highest order. And I, I say that we've been lured into a war of frequencies. And we, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but I think it's worth highlighting again, and maybe go a couple of layers deeper. Um, because if we can recognize that, that we're in this war of frequencies, then we can actually rise above it. So one of the things that is helpful to understand is, you know, quantum physics, it, it shows us that all matter has frequency. You know, we've learned this from quantum physics, but not only does matter have frequency, emotions have frequencies. So for example, fear, fear is one of the lower frequency emotions, whereas love is one of the higher frequency emotions. Now, since the outbreak, um, you know, so many people, like I said, so many people have come under the spell of these mind control tactics because they gave in to fear. And instilling fear in the hearts of the masses is a hallmark trait of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. You know, we think about Goliath, for example. Goliath used fear and intimidation to paralyze the armies of Israel. And I think really... Some of the greatest tragedies of the past several years is that people became literally incapacitated by fear. And then, of course, you get, you know, the propaganda machine of mainstream media. They understand that a constant flow of fear based messaging will keep the masses stuck in their primitive brain where they can't access rational thought. You see, fear originates in the amygdala, and it's that part of the brain that's known as the hindbrain 
the reptilian brain or the primitive brain. And so when we're fearful, our ability to process nuanced information is actually impaired and more more likely just to blindly follow others rather than use critical thinking skills. Now, what's interesting too is if we consider the word pandemic for a moment, because this will actually expose the psychological warfare that we've been under. So the root word of pandemic is pan. And pan is a Greek god, a hybrid, half goat, half man, highly sexualized. And Pan was um, god of the woods and the fields. And it was said that Pan would make a mysterious sound in the woods that would create this contagious, groundless fear in crowds and in people in lonely places. And that's why we have the word panic. It comes from that root word because the Greek god Pan would stir up panic in people. Now, we also get pandemonium from the same root word. And pandemonium is a place of uproar and disorder. It's wild, lawless confusion. And so you can begin to see how all of this connects. You know, it's psychological warfare of the highest order. They released a a pandemic that brought fear and panic. And of course, you know, that is natural within the psyche of some individuals. But then when you add to it, the accelerant of mainstream media hysteria, what you get is contagious groundless fear in large swaths of the population. And that's what we saw. People lost their minds, (laughs) literally. And unfortunately, we also saw pandemonium in the form of riots. And so this is the progression of this psychological warfare. They release a pandemic that leads to panic, that leads to pandemonium. Now, one of the things I think that this pandemic did also is it exposed our primal yearning for life to be good again. And this didn't come about just because of COVID-19. It's actually an innate feature within us because when Yahweh created Adam and Eve, he intended humanity to live in the Garden of Eden, which was this idyllic environment, you know, where all our needs would be met. Well, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, humanity developed this deep longing to return. And this is um, the origin of what John Eldridge calls the primal drive for life. And he wrote the book Resilient, which I highly recommend. It's an excellent book. So essentially in the depths of our beings, you know, we have this deep desire for life to be filled with purpose, love, and joy. But unfortunately what happened is the pandemic forced us to tap into deep emotional reserves, just literally to cope and survive. And Eldridge, he he says, this is the trauma cycle. We rally in the face of harm. And then when the harm subsides, we live in denial of it and go off in search of some taste of Eden. Well, I think many people have not actually recovered from draining their emotional reserves and are actually ill-prepared for the next major crisis. Well, the Nephilim agenda, it creates a revolving door of societal trauma. And so it's imperative that we develop resiliency. Hmm. So how do we do that? And I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is where do we draw our strength from? Or probably a better question is whom do we draw our strength from? Right. Yep. And I think about, you know, the Israelites, they, they watched the mighty hand of Yahweh 
part the waters of the Red Sea. They pass through on dry ground. And then they turn around and watch those same waters swallow up the Egyptian army. Now, you would think, you know, something that spectacular would have sustained their emotional reserves through the hard times of the desert, but it didn't. It didn't take them long to actually look back at Egypt and long for Egypt. And, you know, at first this is like mind blowing or baffling. Why on earth would they want to go back to the land of their enslavement? But it makes sense when we begin to realize that they were experiencing this primal drive for life to be good again. You know, the uncertainty of wandering in the desert where food is scarce and water is scarce. What that did is that led to this deep dissatisfaction. And instead of leaning into the strength that the Lord had for them, they instead, they wanted to go back to Egypt because it was familiar. You know, it was, they were willing to look past the fact that this was a system of enslavement. And I really think Israel had developed this trauma bond with Egypt. And in the um, in the book of Jeremiah, verse two, or excuse me, chapter two, verse 12 and 13, it says, this is the Lord. He says, be appalled at this, you heavens and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so here the Israelites, you know, they turned away from the one who was their living water. He was giving them living water, but instead they turned to idols, you know, as this temporary comfort. And I think about that in our own lives. Like how often do we do that? You know, and we're trying to fill these deep longings with inner selves, but we turn to temporary comforts. And I really think that you know, we can learn a lesson or two from the resiliency of not only um, biblical cares, but also, you know, the apostles um, in the New Testament as well. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's time and time again in the Old Testament, they see the hand of God, and then they go back. I mean, all of the judges, the entire book of judges, that's what it is. It's this cycle of, of, okay, God provides this judge, things get good, you know, God shows up, then they sin again, then they fall into this. And it's just a cycle. And I think that we today, I mean, we absolutely struggle with the same thing, absolutely of turning to other things. Um, and even, even if those things don't seem bad, that's the thing, you know, the, the things that we want to turn to may not be bad, but where is, where's the source? Who Mm -hmm. are you getting it from? are you going to God first, first and foremost? Um, so, I mean, and, and yes, the apostles, absolutely. Paul is a great, great example of that all throughout his letters. We see he's persecuted. He is just beat down, which that I feel like we're, we're being beat down right now. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Just time and time again. So, I mean, how do we build that? Like Paul had that resilience. Yeah. You know, one of the things that for me was um, just really hit home for me because I I recently went to Greece and Turkey and we walked the footsteps of Paul and it was, it was an epic trip. It was so amazing. You know, we went to Athens, we went to Thessaloniki, to Philippi, Berea, um, Corinth, Ephesus, Patmos, Crete. I mean, we just got our feet on the ground in all these locations. And I think what really 
struck me was all that the apostles went through, what they endured, the hardships they endured in order to spread the gospel. And for me, I really had this profound moment in Philippi. And so I want to, I'll share a little bit about kind of the context of what leads up to Acts 16, you know, when, when Paul and Silas um, go into Philippi and, you know, it's interesting when you see the landscape, you know, I've heard people talk about this when they go to Israel. I have not been to Israel. It's still on my bucket list, Yes, but people say it really makes scripture come alive. And it's so true because you can actually see the landscape itself and imagine yourself being Paul. And so, you know, in Acts 16, it talks about how Paul, he travels from Neapolis, which is a port city on the Aegean Sea, up to Philippi. Now, one of the things um, that our tour guide told us is that um, the land of Greece is 80% mountains. And it's true, there are mountains everywhere. And so when Paul walks from Neapolis, the 10 kilometers to Philippi, and he's walking along the Via Ignatia, which we actually saw, there was portions of it that were still there. Um, it's not this easy stroll, right? There's yeah. there's some aspects of it that are a steep climb because he's going from, from the sea to up into the mountains. Well, when he gets to Philippi, what he does is he looks for other God-fearing people. Yeah. And there weren't enough Jews at the time that lived in Philippi to have built a synagogue because normally Paul would go to the synagogues first, but there was no synagogue in Philippi. And so he went down to the river because that was the place where they had gathered to pray and to worship. And that's where he met Lydia. And Lydia was, she was a businesswoman, a very successful businesswoman. And she dealt in purple cloth, which meant she did commerce with aristocracy. And so he goes down to the river and he shares the gospel message, shares that Jesus is the Messiah. And Lydia believes the message. And so she receives Jesus and Paul baptizes her. Now she's the first Western woman to be baptized by Paul. And so here you have this you know, great moment in the life of Paul where he is reaching people that he hasn't reached before. And then attack comes from the enemy. And how often do we go through this? You know, we have a, a mountaintop high and then boom, we're hit with an attack. So what happened for Paul and Silas is this slave girl begins following them and she can tell the future. And that's because, um, you know, she was ordained by the Oracle in Delphi. And when that happened, a spirit entered into her and that gave her the ability to tell the future. And so she earned lots of money for her masters. Well, she was following Paul and Silas around and she was saying, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now that's truth. She yeah. was telling the truth. Yeah. However, she probably was doing it in a very annoying way over and over and over and over again. So where Paul could minister effectively. So after a few days, he gets so frustrated, you know, he rebukes the spirit, he casts it out and now she can't tell the future. So her masters get enraged and they drag Paul and Silas to the Agora, which is the marketplace. And they bring them before the Roman magistrates and the magistrates order them to be stripped naked and flogged. So let me pause here for a moment. So imagine ourselves at an incredibly busy, busy farmer's market. Yeah. 
and we are ordered to be stripped naked. I mean, imagine the humiliation of that. You know, I was just in Sandpoint visiting you and we went to the farmer's market and it's small. It doesn't matter the size of it. To think about being stripped naked in public, total humiliation. Then they were also ordered to be flogged. Now, what this meant in this instance is that they were beaten with rods. Some scholars believe they were metal rods. Others believe they were birchwood. But what we know is that the Romans would train their strongest men to exact the most pain they could from these types of beatings. I mean, they were absolutely merciless. And that's why in Acts um, 16.23, it says, after they had been severely flogged. Now, we don't know how many times they were hit um, because the Romans did not adhere to the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law is 40 lashes minus one, but the Romans didn't pay attention to that. And so we don't actually know how many beatings, but um, it was common that many of the victims of these floggings would end up dead. And that's because, you know, the Romans, they were so skilled in the dark arts of inflicting great torture. Now, one of the forms of beating with rods is they would take the arms of the victims um, and tie them behind the back to restrict movement, kind of like a straight jacket. And then they would throw them on the ground face down. They would lift up their legs and then they would take the rods and they would beat their feet until they were bloody and maimed and broken. And most of the time it would render that person crippled for life. So imagine Paul is spreading the gospel on foot. Yeah. And here they are, they're beating his feet. Now, another form of beating with rods is head to toe beating. And most often that was fatal. So we don't exactly know what type of beating Paul and Silas received that day, but we can be certain it was brutal. Mm -hmm. And most likely they were to the point of death. But as if that weren't bad enough, then Paul and Silas, after the beating, after the flogging, they were ordered into maximum security prison. They were placed in an inner cell with their feet in stocks. Now, let's pause here for a moment, too. Because you and I think we have bad days, right? Yeah. Our bad days do not pale in comparison to what Paul and Silas went through. And what do you, how did they respond? You know, at midnight where I would, I would be completely exhausted, probably passed out from the sheer horror of what happened. And what are they doing? They are praying and praising the Lord and their praises literally shake heaven and earth to the point where, you know, the prison doors are shook open and the chains fall off. And then the prison guard is so freaked out and knows he's in tremendous trouble because he thinks all the prisoners leave. He's about to impale himself with a sword when Paul and Silas yell out that they're still there. And that, you know, that prison guard comes to know the Lord, his family does. Well, how on earth do Paul and Silas, how are they capable of this? You know, where does the resilience come from? And I think we're, we're given a clue in second Corinthians 12, and this is verse seven through 10. It says, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, this is Paul speaking 
So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Paul's resilience was otherworldly. It didn't originate from inside of himself. um, And his resilience came from the strength that the Lord gave him. One of the beautiful things is that Paul realized that when we're weak, it gives the Lord an opportunity to demonstrate his power and strength at work through us. And I believe, you know, I believe we're living in days that are approaching the days of Noah. And these are the days in scripture called the, you know, the end of days or the end times. Well, how does Jesus describe these days? And in Luke 21, 36, he says, and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the son of man. So when we look at that phrase, strong enough to escape, that the Greek word for strong in this passage is katasukho, and it means to be strong enough or to be strong to another's detriment, to prevail against, to be superior in strength and to overcome. Well, what's interesting is this word is only used two other times in scripture. One of those is Matthew 16, 18, where it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, this is because Jesus is calling us to be strong, but he knows that the strength that we need in order to endure the persecution and the troubling times only comes from him. We have to cling to him. You know, he's offering a strength that's supernatural that resides within himself. And when we give our lives to Jesus, Christ indwells us and we're able to tap into that. Hebrews 6, 18 through 19 says, we who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God. I love that. See, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills us, which means the presence of God resides in us. And we would be foolish not to tap into that power source. But so often Christians don't, you know, they don't, um, pull from that deep well within us that is the presence of God. And instead, you know, we focus on the surface things of life instead of pulling from those deep wells. And John Eldridge, he writes this, he says, like a tree sends its roots down deep into the subterranean world, we must learn to tap into the presence of God where he resides within us deep in our innermost being. See, we must realize that we are in a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And these, you know, these Nephilim hosts that I've talked about, they partner with the spiritual forces of darkness to destroy us. And their plan, their strategy is to destroy us slowly, bit by bit, so that we don't notice what's going on. And it's a bit like the proverbial frog 
in the pot of hot water that thinks it's just enjoying a jacuzzi bath all the while it's being boiled alive. And so, you know, to kind of bring this full circle, I mentioned that fear is one of the most powerful drivers of mind control and that we're in this battle of frequencies. Well, in order to have the resilience to prevail against these things, we have to resist fear. Mm -hmm. You know, fear not only does prolonged fear weaken our immune system, but it literally, it pulls us down to where that, to that lower emotional frequency range where the battle is raging. And our creator knows this about us. That's why he warned us in the old Testament, 52 times alone to fear not. And one of my um, favorite passages is second Timothy one, seven, which says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so if we dig into this passage a little bit more, what's happening here is, you know, um, Timothy is, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy during a time where there was great persecution under Emperor Nero. And Timothy was leading the church at Ephesus. And he knew that at any time, Nero's secret police could capture him and torture him in barbaric ways. And so the spirit of fear was crouching at Timothy's door. And Paul discerned that. He picked up on that. And that's why he wrote him, encouraging him and trying to strengthen him. Well, what's interesting is that that phrase sound mind, it's actually a Greek compound word. And it's made up of sozo and phroneo. And sozo means to be saved or delivered. Mm-hmm. And it means it implies that someone has to be rescued, revived, delivered, salvaged, and protected. And it it could mean like rescuing someone from the verge of death by breathing new life into them. Wow. And then froneo means intelligence. It's the total frame of thinking, including our intellect, our rationale, our logic, our emotion. So it has to do with the total aspect of our mind. Then when you bring those two words together, compounded, it means a mind that has been delivered, rescued, salvaged, and protected, a mind that is now safe and secure. And I love that. That's cool. That's really cool. Rick Renner, he um, he has a book, several books. One of them is called um, Sparkling Gems from the Greek. And he writes this. He says, when your mind is guarded by the word of God, you think differently. When the word of God is allowed to work in your mind, it safeguards your emotions. It defends your mind from demonic assault and it shields you from arrows the enemy may try to shoot in your direction in order to arouse a spirit of fear inside of you. And I love that. See, we, in order to have a sound mind, we cannot live in fear. You know, we have to rise above that frequency of fear where all the lies are swirling down in that lower emotional frequency range. And that's because, you know, Nephilim hosts, they are the seed of Satan and their language is deception. Yeah. Yeah. So what Nephilim hosts are trying to do is they're trying to divide humanity with these lower emotional frequency ranges. But again, once we understand that we can rise above the attack and it helps us understand first John four eighteen that much more, which says there is no fear in love. Perfect love cast out fear. Yeah. Well, that's because love overcomes fear. And I love when science confirms scripture mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's the heart math Institute, you know, they have identified that the magnetic field produced by our heart 
is more than a hundred times stronger than what is produced by our brain. And so that means, you know, when we exude these heartfelt emotions like love and joy, empathy, gratitude, compassion, we literally can shift the atmosphere. We can drive fear out of the room. And so I think in order to develop this resilience, you know, what we have to ask ourselves is what are we placing our hope in? You know, are we hoping in a better marriage? Are we hoping in a better job, a better body, a better home to live? You know, what is our hope in? Or are we anchored in Christ who is our living hope? And first Peter one, three, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is what, for me, this is so vital for us to be anchored in living hope, who is Christ himself. And the fact that it's living hope, it means that no matter how grim our situation is, we still have hope. And we know that there are forces that are, you know, working against us, urging us to give up, but God promises us that he is for us and he will never forsake us. And, you know, he is looking to strengthen those who are fully committed in second Chronicles 16, nine, it says the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So when we've prioritized our relationship with Jesus, what that does is that allows us to draw upon the resilience that he gives us. And that way, that's how we endure the trials. You know, trials are from the Lord. Temptations are from the enemy. We can endure trials because we know that they shape our character. They develop maturity in us. And I really think that we are privileged to be called among the remnant um, in these last days. And I believe, you know, we were born for such a time as this. And so I just want to encourage people, may we rise up in the strength that the Lord has given us so that we can defeat, you know, this Nephilim agenda that would try and rob us and steal our inheritance. And may we lay hold of the victory that Jesus has already paid for us on the cross. So I just want to encourage us all with that. Yeah. I love that. So good because we have to hold on to that hope right now. There is nothing in this world that is that's hopeful or anything. And so would you say like in anchoring, like when we want to, you know, someone's listening, I want to anchor myself. I want, I want this, right. But I am so stuck in this fear. Would you say like a great place to start is just daily, like daily practice essentially, right. Practice like will create a habit of reading the word of God, speaking it out loud, so declare I Psalm 91 is a great place to like to declare over you and your household and and prayer. Um and it and it may seem so cliche, right? Read your Bible, make sure you pray, but the importance is is huge. So is that a good place to start to to kind of Absolutely. get out of that? Yeah. Okay. I think um I think of an analogy um here in the Salt Lake area, we have what's called inversion which is essentially smog um, in the winter time. 
and there's certain um, conditions that create it. But what happens is you get really cold air in the valley. It creates this fog that meets with the air pollution and it creates smog. And so it's this thick layer of just gray junk. But the and you can't see the mountains like they've completely disappeared. And you always can see the mountains here. I mean, they're massive. But it's it's when you get above a certain elevation, then it could be clear blue skies. So you go skiing on a day where there's inversion, clear blue skies in the mountains, and you can see the soup in the valley. It's it's absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Thankfully, we didn't have many days of that last year uh, because we had so much snow. Yeah. But um, I often think about that. It's like we have to lift our gaze. We have to rise above that soup of just junk. And how we do that is like what you said, read the word. I encourage people as well to do a content fast, like fast from social media, from the news, from podcasts, even, you know, put that stuff on hold because a lot of times that feeds the fear. Exactly. And dig into the word of God. I use worship a lot, worship music. I enter into a time of worship. Um, When we develop that intimate relationship with the Lord, because he's our living hope, it doesn't matter what's going on around us. And that's the beauty of walking and having resilience is we recognize that when we live with inside of his presence, the enemy can't even find us. And so whatever is happening around, around us, we're not going to be naive to it because we have to fight in the battle, but we have to be grounded first so that we're not fearful. We can't go fight in a battle if we're filled with fear. We'll be paralyzed that like the armies of Israel. So we have to get grounded, anchored in Christ. And those are some ways to do it. So then we can be effective for the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. I love that. I could, I could sit and talk about that forever. <laughs> like it's, I mean, that's just something that God's put on my heart the past like three years, really three, four years is, you know, are you in my word or are you just doing, are you spending five minutes a day with me? Like that was my conviction in 2019. Mm. And if that would not have come, if he would not have convicted me in the end of 2019, there is no way I would have made it through 2020 the way that I did. I would have been crippled because it that comes from generation, generation, like in my family line of just this worry and anxiety. And I can't do anything. I'm just so crippled by fear. So that conviction changed my life mm. through 2020 and into what I'm doing now. And so I cannot hit this home enough times, get in the word, read it, read it for yourself. Don't take what I say. Don't take what Dr. Laura says, what anyone says, read the word for yourself. Pray. If you don't know what to pray, just be silent and be still before God and ask the Holy spirit to, to intercede for you um, and worship. Yeah. What are you, what are you allowing in your ears? What are you allowing to affect you? Because it absolutely affects you. And that's a conversation I've been having with my kids too the past year of like, what are you listening to? You know, how do you feel when you listen to Taylor Swift? How does that make you feel? Mm -hmm. It's completely different than, than worship music. And 
I am so blessed that my kids understand that. And that's what they, they listen to worship music. So, Mm -hmm. so important. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I love talking, you know, that we could sit and talk for hours. Like we, we kind (laughs) of did this last weekend. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, um, And yeah, I'll see you in two weeks. There are a handful of tickets left. So if you're listening to this, when this airs um, in just a couple of weeks, November 3rd and 4th in Phoenix, Arizona, it's going to be nice and sunny, beautiful. You can get that vitamin D uh, for those of us who are already in like middle of fall and cold weather. So um, Laura, where can people find you, find your work, your book, um, and listen to more of what you have to say? Probably the best place to start is my website, which is no longer enslaved.com. And then uh, my book is available on Amazon. It's, I narrated it. So it's also available in Audible. Um, and then I'm excited because um, a Spanish version is going to be coming out within the next few months. Um, it has already been translated. It's now in the proofreading stage. So I'm super excited for that. Oh, cool. Um, I also have a YouTube and Rumble channel called uh, No Longer Enslaved. And then if people want to follow me on social media, I'm on Instagram, Laura Sanger, 444 Hertz, and also Telegram. Love it. Well, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks and I'm so excited. Yeah. If, if you want to come, you're listening, head over to the website, the um, click the events tab. And it's going to be really some really, really good teaching and takeaways from that weekend together. So Laura, thank you. And we'll be in touch. Okay. Sounds good. Take care. See ya.